We'll open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Leviticus. We'll be in chapter 23 this morning. It's page 101 in the Bible provided for you. You're welcome to use that. You're welcome to take that home with you if you didn't come with one today. We have lights on today and we have AC in the room and that's a good thing because we had a plan B. It's first world problems. We build these boxes and then we put ourselves in them and um, we're going to keep the doors open and give you waters and do this in the dark. We were struck by lightning on Wednesday and many thanks to Brian and Jason and Aaron and Lisa and others who were communicating and working hacks to make this thing work today. Um, grateful for this good building. It attracts a lot of lightning, by the way. Maybe that's a story for another day. Well, let's read Leviticus chapter 23, just the first eight verses, though the sermon will be from the whole chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time of appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. Excuse me, uh, verse 7. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, verse 8. But you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days, On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work on that day. And this is the Lord's word for us in the beginning of chapter 23. Well, you can learn a lot about a person by looking at their calendar. You could learn a lot about me by looking at my calendar. Uh, Where I spend my time, where I go, what things are important to me. The same thing could be said of you. And the same can be said of groups of people. Same thing could be said of nations. Our own nation has a a calendar, holidays. Some of them are kind of goofy and funny. I I don't know if they're all national holidays, the ones that Google populates for me automatically. Try to keep those off. But some, of course, are so very important. Uh, Thanksgiving, uh, D-Day, V-Day, Memorial Day, uh, Labor Day even. There's No surprise, there's a fight over the calendar and how to shape the calendar and who gets to shape the calendar because the calendar shapes the people. Will June be Pride Month or will it be Life Month? Two entirely different visions of humanity and what humans are and are for and what they are owed. Even the 4th of July comes under a bit of attack and disagreement. Whoever gets to shape the calendar will shape the people. And we know this. Calendars are important and they are revealing. They reveal something about who we are, what's important to us, what we celebrate, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. 
In calendars, actually, these holidays, these special occasions, help to shape our future based on our past. As we look to our past to consider where we have been, to stay straight in our path forward. And so national calendars do this, family calendars do this. So what if we, what if, what if the God of heaven were to give us a calendar, a perfect calendar of special days and celebrations and occasions to shape us as he would like? According to his perfect wisdom and his holiness and his grace, what would that calendar look like? What would it say about where we have been and who we are and how would it shape where we are going? Well, Leviticus 23 is precisely, precisely that kind of calendar. We're coming in toward the end of the book of Leviticus, just several chapters left and I think four sermons. And you remember the first half of the book is our approach to God through blood. It's the way to life with God. And the second half of the book is our life with God through holiness. A way to life for the first half of the book and a way of life for the second half of the book. And so it should be no surprise that here, now that we have found our way to God through sacrifice and a priest and a day of atonement, that here in the second half of the book, there are laws concerning holiness and love of neighbor and godly sexuality and all of this. And last week, instructions for how to keep the priesthood intact so that our relationship with God could stay intact. And this week, we have festivals. We have three chapters, actually, over the next couple weeks, 23, 24, and 25, on Israel's festivals. And if the first few chapters of Leviticus were about sacrificial offerings, then this last, one of the last sections of the book is now about sacrificial festivals. These are festivals and special occasions that were, in, that were engaged in in the context of Israel's sacrifices. And so we remember the two halves of the book roughly mirror one another, and we had sacrifices to start, and we have a couple chapters that involve sacrifices now on the back end. And it's a bright and a sunny chapter. It's full of details, and it's hard to follow a calendar if these things are new to you. It's an ancient calendar. But it's intended to be encouraging, compelling, and instructive. You know, when you read through parts of the Old Testament, which you may have done, and you stumble across special occasions or moments in the calendar or a feast of one kind or another, a feast, one of booths, of first fruits, a, a Passover feast, some of those may make more sense than others, but it can be a bit of a tangle to try to get your way through certain parts of the Old Testament. And Leviticus has helped us to get clear on what, for example, the various sacrifices are and, for us, how all of the hopes and expectations and purposes infused in those sacrifices pointed to and are fulfilled in Christ and experienced by us in Him. Well, the same is true of the festivals. This sermon will be similar to that sermon we heard many months ago on sacrifices. But now on festivals, we're going to explore some of the festivals that Israel would experience as a part of her life, hopefully clarify, wipe the fog away, clarify for us what they are so that as we read our Bibles, we we know what it's talking about, but even more importantly, so that we can know all that is ours in Christ. 
And we can know how much God has done for us. And we'll know who we are and by them know where he is taking us in Jesus. But some observations to begin before we get into the chapter proper. And this will take a little bit of work. So we'll lay some, some foundation. Uh, in terms of the structure of the book, these festivals are outlined chronologically. So just watch with me here as you, as you look at chapter 23. We begin with the weekly calendar, the repeated Sabbath. There it is, verse 6. Six days shall be work, work be done. On the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. That's a foundation, as we'll see, for the whole calendar of Israel's life. So don't forget it. A seventh day Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. No work is to be done on that day. Now, the rest of the chapter outlines the annual special occasions, the annual festivals, beginning with the first half of the year, which for them started in about March. So I may make some references to our calendar to lay them on there for you. But the first half of the year, which was spring, in the first month, verse 5, on the 14th day, the Lord's Passover, and the next day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then we'll have first fruits, and then the Feast of Weeks in verse 15, and then in verse 23, we get to the seventh month and the, the feasts that would happen in autumn in the seventh month, roughly September or October. So it's broken down into two parts. We've got uh, an, weekly feasts and we, the weekly uh, rhythm of Sabbath and then our annual spring and then fall feasts. These feasts in this chapter unfold chronologically. Next thing we want to say about these feasts, all of them, is that they belong to the Lord. Notice this. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 2, speak to the people. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord. They're his. He even says, the end of verse 2, they are my appointed feasts. They're his. They belong to him. And he gave them to us. They're his appointed feasts. The Lord is the sovereign of space and time, history, our very lives. And he gets to, and he's a good God to do this, he gets to give us our calendar. And he gave Israel, his, his people in the Old Covenant, his, their calendar, his appointed feasts, my appointed feasts. Don't forget that. These are the Lord's. They come from him. They're holy like he is holy. And no surprise, in the book of Leviticus, Holiness is the thing. We've seen holy priests, holy people. The high priest is the most holy. Then you have the priests who are holy. And the people are made holy. They're sanctified by their connection with God's holy presence, the tabernacle. We've seen holy objects. We've seen holy acts and sacrifices. Holy places. Remember the most holy place where God's presence and glory is. And then the holy place, which is near that. And holiness is in proximity to God's presence. So it's no surprise that if, that if God is teaching Israel through everywhere she is and everything she does and every person she's engaged with, then it's no surprise that he would order time accordingly. And so there are holy days. And the Sabbath is a holy day. And these annual rhythms are holy days. And by them, the Lord is teaching his people about what he is like. They're the Lord's feasts. And these feasts are also 
for us. They're the Lord's, but they're given for us. Repeated throughout this chapter, well, excuse me, at the end of each major section, so verse 22, I am the Lord your God, and at the end of verse 43, at the end of that other season, I am the Lord your God. He's the Lord. That's his covenant name he gave to us. He wants to be known by us personally. The Lord your God. You're mine and I am yours. They're for us. And us, plural. These are holy convocations or gatherings. They're not personal parties. They're party parties. They're everyone get together parties, festivals, How could you have a festival without being together? This is what is intended for these. They're an assembly. A word is used later in the chapter. They're for us. And they're joyful. Verse 40 and 41. You peek that way for me. This is where the entire chapter is is leading. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. It's a command to be happy in God. 41, you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. This is a happy, happy chapter. These are, these are good feasts and these are feasts for good times. They're for us. They're for life for us. Remember, the title of the series is an invitation to life with God. And that's what an invitation into his holiness is. It's an invitation into life with him. And note this matter of Sabbath. We'll spend a few moments on this here in verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. No work was to be done. It's a command from God. That's a good command. How tiring and toilsome would life be if it was all work? All work can glorify God, and we worship him in all of it, but our work is not God, and it is not meant to be oppressive by God, even if it's hard under the fall. And so God in his kindness, as opposed to Pharaoh, who had them work all the time, no, 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 he has them work, and then he has them rest. And that rest, that day where they rest and refresh, is a parable, it's a picture, it's a It's an experience of what heaven is like as they rest in God. In this matter of sevens, the seventh day, you cannot escape it. You shouldn't get too excited about any number that you might notice in the Bible, though lots of numbers are symbolic, but the seventh day is significant. We have the Sabbath mentioned here at the beginning. We have seven festivals. Across those festivals... Tucked in between them are a total of seven different special days of rest. The the, the last month in which these festivals fall is the seventh month where all of these festivals culminate. And what is the point of this? Well, the point of this is that the purpose of life is life in God's presence. The Sabbath, the seventh day, God made the, the world and Six days, and he rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but to instruct us as to what the purpose of creation was. He would enter into the enjoyment of all that he made, and he invites us into the enjoyment of all that he has made, into the enjoyment of him as God. 
in relationship with him in the world that he made. So every mention of Sabbath here is, an, is a little pointer to heaven. And time is on a, a Sabbath cycle. We have rest on every seventh day in the Old Covenant. And even space has it. When they get into the promised land, there will be rest. And Jesus invites us to rest in him. So there's a, a complicated but beautiful, even if with these subtleties, picture being painted through all of the festivals in this atmosphere of Sabbath, this atmosphere of rest in God, with all the sevens making up the chapter. It's beautiful and it's meaningful. Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 begins with a sentence with seven days. The creation story unfolds in seven paragraphs. It culminates in the seventh day. Not the sixth day, the creation of man. The point of the creation of man is then to lead to the enjoyment of God and rest in him. Now, as we'll get to a little bit later, we're not under the old covenant, but it's not that we don't enjoy rest. It's just different and it's better, as we'll see. So these feasts on this page fall chronologically. They're the Lord's feasts. They flow from him. They're for us, for our joy and for our rest. We all want purpose in life. It is a restless world. And here, this chapter holds out the promise from a God who offers us our deepest meaning and satisfaction through life in him. And these festivals are also for the world. They're for the world. Um, Exodus 31.17, you don't need to turn there with me, but I want to read something for you. This is the Lord telling his people what the Sabbath is for. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. In Israel's life and Israel's calendar told the world about what God was like and who he is and what he has done for his people. And by keeping this calendar, his people were communicating to the world the goodness and the majesty, the sovereignty of their creator God and their redeemer who redeemed them to himself from slavery. He calls it a proclamation. This is for your generations. It's so that the coming generations would know, he says a little later, in this chapter. So this, these festivals, they're the Lord's, they're for us, they're, they're for the world through us. And they're supposed to be clear, they're not supposed to be confusing. And so as we've gotten accustomed to, in Leviticus, we just need to do the work. We just need to settle in, read carefully, and do the work. And that's what I'm here to help with. And so let's dig into chapter 23 together. We'll look at Israel's feasts, and then we'll consider the Lord of the feasts, and then we'll consider an invitation to the greatest feast. Israel's feasts. As I said, we have seven feasts. Now, you don't need to memorize them all, but what I hope to do is, as you hear a feast's name as you read the Bible, or in the New Testament as it's referenced, by ruminating on each of them in turn, you'll know what it does because they're named in a way that mostly, mostly makes sense. The first is the Passover feast. Verse 5, this happened in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight 
It's the Lord's Passover. Passover. When Israel was in bondage in Egypt, she had the same sin that her Egyptian slave masters had. And as the Lord answered her cries for help and sent plagues and then an angel of death to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians in order to deliver his people from Egypt, it was necessary that, according to God's instructions through Moses, that each Israelite home kill a lamb and mark their doorpost with blood. And the angel of death that night would pass over the Israelite home and the firstborn in that home would not die. And so, by faith, although it sounded a little crazy, each Israelite would home would kill an animal and then mark the doorpost with blood. It sounded crazy and far-fetched that they just might be delivered from Pharaoh, although they'd seen the Lord do some amazing things. It would have sounded far-fetched that this would be the way, but God was teaching them. He was teaching them what it takes to forego judgment. And so the angel of death passes through and passes over their homes. And this celebration, this Passover celebration, and all the details are in Exodus 12 and 13, different, different book. Uh, this Passover celebration was given so that the people would remember what God had done to deliver them from Egypt. Now, God came to Abraham with a promise in Genesis 12. Abraham had children. But the exodus, this deliverance from Egyptian slavery, is considered the birthday of Israel, the nation. And so it's a very important occasion, and it's to be remembered the Lord's Passover. Well, there's a feast right after that, very next day, on the 15th day, the day after the 14th, of the same month, the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Now, Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover go together. They're two different feasts. But you think of New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, or Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. They're really kind of celebrating the seventh, same thing, right? But on different days, and you understand why. Well, in this case, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, here's how you'll remember that, that's what they ate. Bread that didn't have time to rise because they had to leave Egypt in haste in the night. I've got some cold pizzas in my fridge right now. And I used to eat cold pizza as a kid because my mom liked cold pizza and I just thought we did that. And I grew up, I'm like, we don't do that. My little daughter's eating cold pizza and we need to figure out how to make that stop. Um, I've got a whole bunch of cold, bunch of pizzas in my fridge right now. And if I were to get a call, not for something happy, but let's say an emergency in another state, uh, my mom or dad is not well. I would want to get there immediately. And if I hadn't eaten, I might grab a box of pizza and get in the car, eat cold pizza. And that particular food would, would commemorate, would remind me of what I went through on that occasion and why I had to get out of town, why I was eating that kind of pizza. Well, similarly, a very different circumstance, these people were delivered in haste in an emergency kind of moment, in a moment of crisis, in the night from Egypt. It was very scary. They ate unleavened bread. And so they feast and they eat unleavened bread to remember what the Lord had done for them. The next feast, verse 10, 
Speak to the people, say to them, when you, come, when you come into the land that I give you, reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. The feast of first fruits, this is called. And first fruits, that is the first of the crop, it'd be the barley harvest in Israel. They bring the very first as a way of thanking God for all that is to come and acknowledging their dependence on him for all that they will receive. First fruits, when they get into the land. The other two festivals looked backward at God's deliverance in order to see what he would do for them in the future. This one is more forward-looking. This says, when you get into the land, when God keeps his promise to you, and you get into the land, then you're going to give this offering of first fruits. It's a festival of first fruits. It's a celebration of God's kindness to keep his promises in delivering his people into his presence in the land. And so they will celebrate the Lord and they'll give to him of their first fruits. Verse 15. This one is titled a little different. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And there's a number of sacrifices that we've explored in Leviticus already that they do. And you can just see from the the, the volume of, of material here, verse 15 to 21, this is a big one. Feast of Weeks, it's called. It goes by a couple different names. Think of how we call communion, communion. We also call it the Lord's Supper, and Jesus gave it to us. But it's communion with him and one another. It's both, and we know they're interchangeable. This is often called Feast of Weeks or Feast of Ingathering. It's when the harvest would, would come. It's also called Pentecost means 50, count 50 days to the day. And then you ask, well, I thought it said seven full weeks. 50 days, seven full weeks. Is that that new math the kids are doing? Maybe it's the really old math. Um, This is probably something like, you know, Sunday to Sunday, a week. Or I'll see you in a week next Sunday. It works. Um, 50, count 50 days, seven weeks. No need to get too hung up over the, the one day there. We even do this kind of thing when we, when we talk. First fruits and feast of weeks, called Pentecost. Then we have the feast of trumpets. Oh, no, no, let me, let me wait there before I proceed. Um, note here in verse 22, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, this is a little instruction on how they were to care for the poor among them, those traveling through, maybe without a home. With all this instruction concerning feasts and the Lord's worship, he is saying to his people, and don't forget the poor, in all of your worship and eating and celebration. In fact, these things go together. His heart is for the poor. And so there's a little parenthesis here to care for their neighbor and to love their neighbor even as they worship him, even out of the overflow of worshiping 
him. Maybe a comment needed because it's easy to get caught up with the things of God spiritually, vertically, and forget our neighbor. And this is no, no kind of um, endorsement or s- simple argument for government programs to solve poverty problems. These things are quite complex. And that is a discussion for a different time. This concerns the Israelites and her care for her neighbor. And friend, you have a neighbor. And remember your neighbor as you go to church on Sunday morning. Remember your neighbor as you drive by their home, as you walk by their, their desk. Your worship of the true and living God issues in a love for neighbor, in particular, the poor. So let's keep our eyes out. Okay, now on to the next, the next festival and the next season. So notice here, verse 23, speak to the people of Israel, saying, in the seventh month on the first day of the month. Okay, so we've arrived now at the seventh month. You shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. This one just lasted a day. And trumpets, trumpets were, trumpets were an announcement of a king's victory, an announcement, a reminder that the king is with you in battle, a battle call. Trumpets would also express a cry out to God to remember his people as they are in trouble and in turmoil and in battle. Trumpets, a a kind of call out to God to remember your people. And it's something that makes sense after and just ahead of here the Day of Atonement, which is the next festival. So the Day of Atonement, festival number six. And we read about this several weeks back. This is that day where that sin offering is, but it's a, it's a super sin offering. That is, two goats are prepared for sacrifice. On one goat, the priest puts both of his hands and confesses the sins of the nation and the people. And that goat goes out of the camp and into the wilderness to die but into chaos, into nothing, it is gone. And it takes our sins as far as it goes away. And the next goat goes all the way in to the presence of God, into the holy of holies. And that signifies that our sins are completely taken away vicariously. And in this goat, which is a representative of us, that takes them. And then this goat here goes all the way into the presence of God. And and in a way, that's a picture of us now able to go all the way into the presence of God as that goat goes. The Day of Atonement was a solemn day, a serious day, a day for the confession of sin and a day in which God, by his grace, took all their sin away. Now, not perfectly. It had to be done every year. But truly, their sin was removed. A real forgiveness was had. It was a real great day, even, if, even as it was a solemn day. And this is one of the festivals that is celebrated, the Day of Atonement. Now, they're not to eat, so not all these feasts actually even involve food. They're not to eat on that day. They're to afflict themselves. That's what that means. They deny themselves food to remember the Lord, the Day of Atonement. Very serious, not to celebrate, it was to be cut off from the people. That's how, that's the stakes that are involved in, with these two goats in our relationship with God, were we Israelites. All right, festival number seven, the Feast of Booths. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Verse 33, speak to the people on the 
15th day of the seventh month and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. And if you're reading the whole chapter, verse 39 forward gives you a little bit more. They were to dwell in booths for a week, little, little huts, little tents, to remember how they lived together in the wilderness and that their generations would remember what their parents went through. Of course, it was just play acting, but it was a, a very helpful way of putting yourself back in their shoes, or maybe we should say putting yourself back in their booths, their tents. I heard a laugh. Thank you. Um, so the Feast of Booths, now you won't forget it. So they live in these little booths for a week. And this was the third of the trips that the men had to take all the way to the tent, wherever it was, or to the temple. They had to come to Jerusalem for this festival. Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread and uh, Feast of Weeks was another one, and now the Feast of Booths is a pilgrimage one. As the Feast of Booths developed over the years, come first century, the priests would, on the, on the first day and, and, and each day, would pour out a, a basin of water at the temple. And the prophets, years after Leviticus is given here, would speak and preach about a day coming when from the house of the Lord, from the temple, would flow rivers of living water. And giant torches were set up on that first day of the Feast of Booths so that from anywhere you were, you could see the temple and its light an image to communicate that from the temple comes the light of life for the world. Rivers of living water flowing from the very presence of God everywhere. Feast of booths. And this is when they would gather in the produce of the land, verse 39. So God has given them food and they're celebrating the end. You can see this was built on the agricultural Season. Now, we're, like most of us, largely removed from this. The eggs are almost always the same. When someone else in my family goes to buy them at the grocery store, the milk is almost always the same. When I go to buy it over at Food Lion, because it's cheaper. The food is the same in the grocery store. Most of the time, produce can change. But we don't feel much the impact of the changing seasons in our weekly and seasonal eating habits. It certainly doesn't govern my work. I'm not thinking, is the sun up or is it raining or how are my crops? And even if we keep a garden, and that's a good thing to do, our lives don't depend upon it. Well, it did for ancient Israel. And so the Lord built these festivals into their seasons of work and life to show that he's providing and through those festivals to show them what he's like, where they've been, who they are, and where they are going. Israel's feasts. Now these feasts were proclamations. The Lord gave them to his people so the generations would know what the Lord has done and they spoke of what he would do. So it's no surprise. It's no surprise that in the same way that the sacrifices spoke to us about Christ and were all fulfilled in Jesus, so too these feasts, each of them in its own way, points to and is fulfilled in the, the Messiah who comes. God with us. In working through this series, we've had many good conversations with a number of you. A recurring theme is, I'm so glad we don't have to do all that stuff 
Isn't it great to be a Christian? And I want to resonate with that. I mean, come on. On the other hand, I've been thinking about this. I think we might kind of be missing it with that kind of thought. Like, ooh, it was really complex. I'm so glad it's simple. If you were to walk through, pick your favorite sport, football, basketball, walk through how the season works and spring training for baseball and, and the patterns of play and the brackets and how finals or the last game works, each a little different, and, and, and you would explain that. Someone wouldn't say, oh, I'm so sorry for you, it's so complicated. You wouldn't be thinking complicated. You'd be trying to bring them in on it. And the reason I'm not using one sport in particular is because I'm hardly an expert on any sport. And there are some that you know very well everyone should. I don't know anything about. I just watch you watch those games. Well, for Israel, for Israel, this calendar wasn't a whole bunch of stress. They didn't read this. They, They read this, and this was their memories of family and of church and of what God was doing and of where God had taken his people. And this was deeply personal. And this is actually our story as Christians. This is how we get to where we are, how God gets us to where we are. And so as we come now to think about Christ and who he is, we don't just think, oh, uh, thank God it's now just as simple as a person. It's not that it was complex and now it's simple. It's that it was great and now it is even greater in the person of Jesus. They had so much from God, and we have so much more in Christ. So let me show you how much we have in Christ. Christ, friends, is our Passover lamb. He's our Passover lamb. John chapter 19. Um, you can turn to John if you want. I'll be in a few places, but I will spend a good bit of time in John, but I won't ask you to flip everywhere. In fact, I'll drive you a little nuts here in the next few minutes if you try. But in John chapter 19, verse 14, it's just no mistake that these are here. This isn't merely helping us know kind of, you know, where it fell on the calendar. So to add a little bit of flavor to the story, it is the story. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover and it was about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews, behold your king and they cried out away with him, away with him, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So they delivered him over to be crucified on the occasion of the Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Flip over to page 36. Excuse me, to uh, Numbers, excuse me, to 19, verse 36. Later in the chapter. Jesus' side was pierced. He's, He's died in verse 36. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Quote, not one of his bones will be broken. They will look on him whom they've pierced. Not one of his bones may be broken. Exodus twelve forty six. It shall be eaten, the Passover meal, in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. John, John is using the Passover. John is holding out the events of Jesus' life because the Spirit has done this. As God designed the story, 
so that his death falls on the occasion of the Passover and his bones are not broken so that you and I will know that what God, God did for his people in passing over their homes so that they would forego the judgment of death, he has done for you and I. And if you symbolically, by faith in Jesus, paint the doorpost of your life with the blood of the spotless Passover lamb, Jesus, then, then death will pass over you. Yes, you'll die, but you'll be raised again to new life. You will not die. You will die, but you will not stay dead. This is the promise of Christianity. This is the promise of the Bible. This is the promise of the Passover. Oh, it was only just enough. It was not just enough to be passed over on that one occasion in their history, but the reason they celebrated that meal over and over again because God was saying, this is what I do for my people. And you have no idea what I'm going to do for you. How great it will be. But when you see it, you will know. The Son of God is our Passover, our Passover lamb with not a broken bone. And Jesus is the bread of life. Turn to John chapter 6. Excuse me. Yes, John chapter 6. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So John has told us. When this is taking place, there's discussion about bread now, where to get some. As the people sit down, he multiplies the loaves. He feeds them with bread. Now it's the Passover, but look at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea. There's discussion about the bread. Now what's the next day after the Passover? It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it is on this occasion that Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 32, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Lots of bread things going on that he's fulfilling, but he's doing it on the occasion of the feast of unleavened bread. I have to think that Mark planted that time indicator there on the next day for just that for just that reason. We're trying to interpret what he's doing, but he does a lot with the feasts. John does. Christ is our first fruits. Passover happened on a Friday and the feast of unleavened bread began it was 7 days it began on Saturday And Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday. Sunday, which would have been the feast of the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, listen to me read what the Apostle Paul says about who Christ is. Paul is discussing the resurrection from the dead and its its vital importance. How without it we have no hope. If you say, Christ has already been raised or the resurrection is something else. It's not that important. What's important is Jesus died for us. But apart from resurrection, there's no hope. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. You bring the first fruits of your harvest to God. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. The first fruits of the harvest is the first, which is to say there's more coming. 
Jesus is the first raised from the dead, which is to say there's more coming. And if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, there's not more resurrection coming. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, you and I really are dead in our sins. But he is raised from the dead, and so you're not if your faith is in him. The first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. Christ is the one who brings the harvest at Pentecost. Look at Acts chapter 2, or listen to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 begins when the day of Pentecost, oh, there it is. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, as Christians, you may be familiar with the word Pentecost, and we think of that as the birth of the church when God sent the Holy Spirit. But it was a thing before he did that. See, on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost arrived, the the day of 50s, the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after unleavened bread, when the church was born, when Jesus would bring a harvest, when he would gather into himself by his spirit a people, when 3,000 souls were added that day and many repented and believed and the church was established. So Jesus is our king who brings in the harvest at Pentecost. And if trumpets are a cry to God to remember his people, then the coming of Jesus is God's answer to our prayers when we cry out to him for help and salvation. And so it's not a surprise that there's more trumpets in the Bible to come. Trumpets that would be a prayer or an announcement that God is king, that he is with us, and that his king is coming. Jesus is returning. Expect that. Trumpets will accommodate him. And of course, of course, friends, Jesus is our great high priest. Day of atonement. He is our great high priest who doesn't go in with a goat. He goes in with himself. And all of our names aren't on a goat. All of our names are on Jesus. And as he dies for us, the the veil of the, the temple is torn in two which is to say the way to God has been opened up. And so Leviticus has put us in a position of wondering at the beginning of the book, how is it that humankind, any of us, will get in with God if Moses can't go in? Well, we need sacrifices and a priest and two goats. You know what? The Lord will send Jesus to take care of all of this. And it's not just that the complex becomes simple because he is not simple. He is deep. And you will know him better by knowing your Old Testament, this book of Leviticus. He's opening my eyes to the the greatness of Jesus and his work. And I pray he he is to you. Well, one more feast to go, the seventh. And with that, I want to offer you, from the lips of Jesus, an invitation. If you would, turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. This is just a chapter after Jesus said he's the bread of life. Chapter 7, verse 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the the Jews' feast of booths was 
at hand. So this chapter takes, it takes place on the occasion of the Feast of Booths, and John is highlighting for that for us. We may assume and try to discern its significance. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began, began teaching. Verse 16, my teaching is mine, is not mine, but him who sent me. He's identifying with his father. Verse 21, I did, the one, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body whole? Jesus kept the law, but he was, he was claiming the authority of God as claiming authority over the Sabbath. So we've got something special about Jesus here. If he is not Lord, he, they ought to be angry. But he is Lord. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, do you remember... The Feast of Booths and what had developed come the first century. The priest pouring out the water from the temple to symbolize that God one day would water the whole earth with life from his presence. The priest would pour this out every day of the Feast of Booths and seven times on the seventh day of the Feast of Booths to make a point And Jesus cries out on the last day of the feast, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, that's you and me. You see how much greater. You have in you The reality of all that that water flowing from the temple symbolized. If you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have received him as your Passover lamb and the first fruits of the resurrection, you really believe that he's the only hope in life and death for sinners. Then you have the Holy Spirit given to you by God. And that Holy Spirit is the very presence of God in you. Life in you. And flowing from you. And just turn one page here and remember the lights. Verse 12 And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus is the light of the world. And so he is our light. And so he is our life. And so this whole Bible and this whole series through Leviticus and certainly from Jesus' own words is an invitation to you. If you believe in him, you can have eternal life. If you believe that Jesus, if you will believe that Jesus is your Passover lamb, your first fruits, the one who gives the very presence of God by his spirit, all of this can be yours. All of this indeed is ours as a church. So what about the church's calendar? Should we bring about these feasts? Should we talk about them a lot? Should we sort of approximate what they, they did? 
mentions Paul trying to get to a city on the occasion of the first fruits, excuse me, the, the Pentecost. Jews were still celebrating their, their special occasions, and the New Testament letters will say, hey, relax when some think those are really important and others, and others don't. There was a transitional time as the Jews had their calendar they'd been working from all the time. But it was crucial that they understood that it wasn't just that In the New Covenant, as the church, it's not just that we have a different rhythm and that we don't do those things anymore. It's that we have everything that those feasts were leading to and promising at once, all the time, in Christ. And so as we look on the pages of the New Testament, if we're looking for a calendar, if we're looking for a prescription from God for what to do and when, get out your pencil and mark your calendars, read your New Testament. On the first day of the week, John 20... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw some stone had been taken away from the tomb. In verse 19, on the evening, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And in Acts chapter 20, when the church is now born and at work and on mission, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with Then they were getting together on the first day of the week, which is why when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. It's not, it's wrong to see this as, oh, the Sabbath moved from the sixth day to the first. No, you missed the whole point of the Sabbath. The point is, in Jesus, everything that the Sabbath was promising, this special day of rest where a contrast of work and toil and then rest and refreshment of God That's our life now in Christ. It's not that now we have a day on the first day of the week where we get to do that too. No, we still work and that's fine as needed on the Lord's day, we call it. It's that everything that the Sabbath was looking forward to, that rest and refreshment is now always ours at all times in Jesus. And it can be and it is yours if you're in Christ. And when we meet Jesus, when he comes and in the new creation, this will be perfect And there will be no toil in our souls or trouble in our souls or no sense of purposelessness and aimlessness and frustration in life. No, if you have come to Christ, this is yours. And so why do we meet on the first day of the week? It's not just that our life is more simple than it used to be with all those complicated things. No, it's that all of those feasts are now ours and the first day of the week is the day that we come together to remember all that is ours in Christ. And no surprise, Jesus gave us a meal, the Lord's table, to share as often as we share it. Some churches share it every week, and I don't think that's a terrible idea. It's not our plan, but it makes sense, doesn't it? The first day of the week is when we meet to remember all that we have together in Jesus. And the first day of the week is from the Lord, and it's for us, and it's for the world. For as we gather each Lord's day... We are proclaiming that everything God was promising in all of those feasts is ours in Christ. That's what going to church means. Going to church, coming together for a holy convocation, a holy gathering like this, is to say everything God has promised and purposed for us is ours in Jesus. And it will be perfectly ours when he comes again and we hear that trumpet. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. 
and that we can ever and always feast on him who is the bread of life for us and drink from him by the spirit who is living water for us. And remember and not forget all that is ours, even to taste it more sweetly as we come together on a day such as this, the first day of the week. And Father, as Israel was easy to forget all that was theirs and needed these feasts, so we need this meeting. And would you, by our singing now, remind us of all that is ours in Jesus, our living water, our bread of life, our Passover lamb, and our first fruits of the resurrection. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.